0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by David Means, The Spot, which was published in The New Yorker in 2006.
1: Here we are, Shank thought, or maybe said, outside the hotel, waiting out yet another John delayed by his guilt and his doubts and the time it takes to check his morality at the door. Driving north, praying for forgiveness, taking a rain check on his deeper principles while the dull fields fly eagerly past the bug speckled windows.
0: The story was chosen by Jonathan Franzen, whose fifth novel, Purity, came out last year. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1999. Hi, John.
1: Hello, Deborah.
0: Thanks for coming back on the podcast.
1: It's a testament to how long the podcast has been around,
0: (laughs) it's been a while. That last time you read some short comic pieces by Ian Fraser and Veronica Gang and this time you've chosen something
1: a little more serious. Although not entirely without its humor, it is. No, not I humorless. Mean, David is always funny. But uh yeah. definitely uh, in a darker register, yes.
0: You mentioned that the story The Spot is is just one of those stories that stays with you. What do you think gives it that kind of persistence?
1: A lot of David's fiction stays with me. Full disclosure, he and I are old friends. And uh, I did have very particular reasons for choosing this story at this particular time. But in general, I have to say his stories stay with me. And I think it has to do with the fact that he, he is a secret poet. He has never shown his poetry to the world, but the poetry is there. And he works with really, really strong basic imagery. And in this case, it's a water story. And there's something about the very premise of the story. The central image is this little ripple spot in Lake Erie, which is right over the water intake pipe for the city of Cleveland, where the the lake water is being drawn in and you can barely see it. That image alone, I just have never been able to get rid of.
0: Obviously, at this point, he's no longer a secret poet. You've outed him. Will he be upset by that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, although I I think it's still unlikely that he'll show his poetry to the world.
0: You are old friends, and you often look at each other's work as you're working on it. Did you see early drafts of the spot?
1: Uh, Yeah, I would say most of David's short stories come over my desk before they go out into the world. You know, often for David, it's, uh, I think, his process. He would be the first to tell you this. It involves putting a lot on the page and then cutting down, cutting down, and starting to rearrange. And often it's a pretty drastic reduction. The liposuction can be as much as 60%, 70%. In this case, the story more or less came out the way it ended up in The New Yorker.
0: Obviously, this is a water story, and we'll hear about that there's often something sort of elemental in his work. I mean, his first story collection was called Assorted Fire Events. What do you think those sort of strong images give to his work?
1: You know, when I think about what's distinctive about David's work, there is a sly and often overlooked humor running through a lot of it. I think he also is unusually daring and successfully daring in his what he's doing to the short story form in terms of voices stories within stories the order in which pieces of the story come out and yet none of that would matter if there weren't also flesh on the bones as it were and I think he's drawn to these elemental and kind of archetypal images whether it's fire or railroad tracks he comes back and back to railroad tracks. He comes back and back to water. It's hard not to associate it with the fact that he comes from Michigan, which is surrounded um, Mm on three or five, however you want to count it, sides by water. I mean, it's a watery place with rivers running through it. Um, So there's water, there's sand, there's fire, there's railroad tracks, there are highways. And that's kind of, you know, he's, he's really, really a deeply Michigan writer in that sense.
0: Well, we'll talk a little more after the story. And now here's Jonathan Franzen reading The Spot by David Means.
1: The Spot. Jack Dunhill, also known as Bone, also known as The Bear, also known as Stan Newhope, also known as Winston Leonard, also known as Michigan Pete, also known as Bill Dempsey, also known as Shank, said, Not those little waves, but that little pucker on the surface out there is where the Cleveland water supply is drawn in, right there, and if you were to dump enough poison on that spot, you'd kill the entire city in one sweep. Believe me, I've thought it out you just have to hit right there,' he said, pointing again. And then he turned to examine her gaze, and in doing so presented his face, weathered from years of picking blueberries and cherries in Michigan, and, after that, a merchant marine gig during Vietnam. You see, the water is unsuspecting until it hits that spot. It has no idea it's going to be collected, drawn under the streets, cleaned up, and piped into homes. Not a clue. But when it touches that suck, its future vanishes.' No chance of becoming a wave after that, no kissing the shore and yearning back out into the lake. Instead, it ends up pooled on somebody's lawn or slipping down a throat or spooned into a bowl of baby cereal. That's the mystery of chance. One minute you're one thing, the next you're another, and choice had nothing at all to do with it. He paused, pointed one last time at the spot shook himself free of his reverie, and pulled her close while she searched the water, tried to find the spot, and, failing to do so, said, "'I see it. I do. It's right where you said it would be.'" All this while killing time in Cleveland, waiting for the Mansfield John to show up to collect the girl because against all odds he had sent payment in advance for an evening of pleasurable escort after succumbing to Shank's well-polished pitch— the girl's name is Meg, hell, name her whatever you want, but I'd like you to call her Meg when you greet her for the first time, my friend, said girl being in the prime of her youth, fresh as a daisy and rare and to go. She'd practically escort you for free if I weren't around to mediate her desires, my friend, he said from a phone booth outside Ypsilanti, watching the girl as she sat in the car, fixing her face in the mirror. The Mansfield John's number had come from a list of potential clients he'd been keeping. Names and numbers whispered to him as he and Meg rambled aimlessly around the Great Lakes. "'Ohio men in need,' it said at the top in block lettering. Below were six names. He'd tried four of them already with no luck, but this time he felt the guy taking the bait. A sense of urgency formed at the other end of the line as the Mansfield John succumbed to the image he had painted. A bright young girl entwined in a skein of sexual confusion, open to just about anything." A girl born out of the loins of Akron, smothered by a father's touch and then cast out to fend for herself. He'd left out the boring details, the way he had come upon her small body curled up asleep beneath an overpass outside Port Huron. The long journey they'd taken around the rim of the state of Michigan following the mitten, staying as close as possible to the waterline. He'd left out her delicate neckline and the shallow hopelessness of her gaze and the way he'd educated her in how to make use of her flesh to earn funds. He'd left out his former religious training at the Grand Rapids Bible Institute and the way God had failed to give him a precise indication of his will. After that, he'd begun to zero in on a price, speaking to the image he had conjured of a somewhat dainty man in neat trousers, with the kind of studied, dreamy comportment you'd expect from a farmer who had gone into the seed business and left field work behind for good. There was a hint of yokel in the Mansfield John's voice, a bit of hick around his tongue tempered by church-going and Sunday school teaching. Yes, there was most certainly some Bible study in the formality of his elocutions, and there was fear in the amplitude of his voice, just loud enough to sound natural. In the phone booth, Shank imagined Mansfield as a man with neat hair, parted clean on the left-hand side, held with a shellac of brilliantine, cut tight above the ears. His wife would be in the family room watching television, aware of her husband in the kitchen, maybe even listening in to his side of the conversation which to her would seem naturally cryptic, because he often made deals on the phone, talking about seed prices, the best hybrids to plant, the way to intercrop carrots with corn. With this in mind, Shank took care when the dickering began and told Mansfield, Just say soy if you're going to bid lower on Meg, and alfalfa if we hit the magic number. Eventually, the john said, softly, Yes, alfalfa is the way to go because it's a versatile crop. Alfalfa will do just fine in your soil if you're lucky with the weather. And, and Shank said, good, we got a deal, and you'll be saving this little girl's life, Mansfield, you understand, because she's putting money away for college after being kicked out of her home for no good reason. Then he instructed the man where and when to meet, adding, just give us a nod, you'll see us standing around outside the Holiday Inn, and then go on up and check in and I'll send her up to you. You'll know us when you see us. I'll be the one with the big shoulders, and she'll be the one with the sweet derriere. Here we are, Shank thought, or maybe said, outside the hotel, waiting out yet another John delayed by his guilt and his doubts and the time it takes to check his morality at the door, driving north, praying for forgiveness, taking a rain check on his deeper principles while the dull fields fly eagerly past the bug-speckled windows. As Mansfield drives, alone in the car, his face will be composed, the same look he might have when teaching his Sunday school class. As he reaches up once or twice to straighten his cuffs or his tie, and assures himself that if he maintains a certain formality, he'll be able to justify anything he might do in this good world. When he gets to the hotel, he'll be so enthralled by his own desire, acute, as solid as carved stone, that the rest of his life, The house and the business and his upstanding place in the community will become nothing but a small white dot behind him, zipping away like the last of an old television image. A bolo tie at his throat, fresh-pressed plaid shirt tucked smartly into his chinos, the john will unchain the door, let it swing open, throw his arms wide, and say, "'Come on in, Meg,' offering up a room truncated and narrow, papered in gold foil." periscoping to a view of Lake Erie from 15 stories up. She'll go directly to the window and stay there with her back to him as long as possible, looking out, trying to fashion some drama. She'll go directly to the window and stay there with her back to him as long as possible, looking out, trying to fashion some drama. From the Violet Johns, she's learned that it's best to build up an assemblage of gestures, somewhat vaudevillian and slapstick, around the act itself in order to preempt the hard, cold dynamics that otherwise set in naturally. She would have got that from her father, an old tool-and-die guy, an awareness of the importance of the fine gradients, of using a micrometer, measure twice, cut once, and all that. Most Johns were as hard as tungsten, as square inside as an unworked block. Behind her, Mansfield will cough a couple of times, unhitch his belt, and then approach her hesitantly. Beneath his facade of neat and upstanding morals will be a horrible goat-like presence, a humping energy that will arrive musky and damp, pressing up against her, moaning, reaching around to tweak her breasts. That much is certain. This John's a connoisseur of dry, Shank had warned her. He likes it sandpapery and rough, no lubrication, none, nada. As Shank waited for her down in the hotel lobby, he began to feel himself edging into pure speculation. He knew little about what really went on up in the room, but he had a basic idea and he could imagine in general terms how she coped. Most likely she'd, number one, find a crass rigidity all bone and sinew in the brashness of survival, number two, abolish the formality of her own flesh, reduce herself down to an essence hips, the arch of her foot and shoulder blades, the part in her hair, the fine down on her earlobes, the nape of her neck. Number 3. Assume a protoplasmic mobility, the creep of the protozoa, one-celled hydra, primal and original and eager to consume itself for a lunch. In due course, Mansfield will tell her that he sells seed and some heavy equipment wholesale just outside of town proper. And then he'll let his pants fall to the floor, step out of them, and move behind her as he places his cold, bloodless hands around her belly and tries to turn her while she resists slightly, and then some more until he has to use a little force. And then they'll do a give-and-take shuffle to the bed where he'll push her down and take her clothing off a bit at a time until finally they'll be doing it. And then he'll completely embody that goat-like carnality, grunting and groaning, while she keeps her eyes closed and concentrates on the spot. Shank had pointed out to her on the water earlier. And she'll think about how it would feel to be devoured by darkness and then spat out somewhere, startled and renewed, fresh and tight from a spigot into a bucket or out onto a lush lawn somewhere pleasant. Yes, she'll use that image, hold to it, and it will make things easier for her, he thought down in the lobby, waiting for her to emerge from the elevator, which she did about forty-five minutes later, raising her hand to adjust her hair, glancing around for him, with a bit too much eagerness. There was something in her face, a slackness in her jaw that foretold the confession she'd give an hour later, driving through the moonlit suburb of Lakewood, speaking softly, saying, he had that string tie on the whole time and it kept bugging me, you know, those cold metal tips kept brushing me and it was like they were saying, here I am, yank me, we're ready to go, just grab hold, cross the line, he said, not out loud, but with his hands and his, you know what, I said, no, He struck me and said, cross it. I said, no, he hit me again. Then those strings told me, draw me tight. And so I did. I did. It took all my might. I dug a knee into his ribs, tightened the bolo tie around his neck, and rode him like a bronco until he stopped moving, she said. Shank could just barely make out the shape of her face in the pale Ohio light. Go on. Go on, he said. And she said, well, what do you want to hear? Give me the nitty gritty, he said. "'Give me the sick parts that this country ain't ready for, "'the bits folks would never believe.' "'He waited, listening to the engine shudder. "'Well,' she said. "'His teeth popped out during the fight, "'his bridge, I guess you'd call it, the four front ones, "'and when I was done, I popped them into my mouth and said, "'What's up, Doc?' "'You didn't,' he said, feeling the laugh come up from his ribs "'and then listening as she laughed in response.' Eventually, they were up on the beach road, passing sensible homes, locked tight and frowning out at the lake with mute but unshaded windows while the first light came along the edge of the lake. And he explained to her how even Erie would ignite if he touched a match to it correctly. And then he rambled on, trying to stop himself at first, about the time he'd witnessed the Cuyahoga River burn, a calico blanket of shimmering flames elbowing its way into the heart of Cleveland, And how the sight of it had changed everything and made him aware that his calling wasn't with the lord because there hadn't been a single recognizable sign of prophecy in that water even as it burned after a swing up to detroit for no good reason except to pay off a gambling debt and to cast a glance at lake saint Clair, they headed east along the dreary tedium of canada highway 401 the staggering dull flatness and repetition this part of Canada is nothing but a feeble reflection of U.S. glory, he said. Then he carried on about old draft-dodger buddies who'd gone nuts from missing the American stuff, guys who hallucinated burger joints, strip clubs, and billboards behind their eyelids. I avoided that. I skirted that issue, he said. I went into the Merchant Marine to get around running to Canada, and I got around it easy while my buddies went over and came back fucked up or dead. Do I feel the guilt that comes from that? I certainly do. Do I live each day pondering it? I certainly do. Do I lament the way history chewed my best buddies up? I certainly do. Do I wonder at the great forlorn gravity of the way things went in the past? I most certainly do. Do I spend my days in a state of total lament? I certainly do. Do I tell the same old threadbare stories over and over as a way to placate the pain that is stuck between my rib bones? I do indeed. Am I just another lost 60s soul who dropped one tab too many and can't extricate myself from a high? I certainly am. And then, from that point, he kept talking, unable to help himself, until his discourse expanded, while she dozed and slept fitfully, rising from her dreams to catch fragments of his voice. And he fell into a reverie and told a long story as he drove, keeping close to the speed limit because the Mounties were out, their hats aslant. Here's the story verbatim as he told it. There was this guy named Ham. This was just after my buddy Billy T. came back from his first tour of duty. He had to surmise Ham's story because otherwise he was pretty much a blank slate. A big guy, the son of a pipe fitter from the Upper Peninsula. He was living in that town I told you about. The old hobo hangout near the Kalamazoo River. A spot behind the railroad tracks not far from a gravel pit. Anyway, Ham had this wigwam set up, an assemblage of old sheet iron, tar paper, birch bark, leather, nylon, deer hides, and bear skins laid over the original Potawatomi wigwam frame. Arch branches twined with petrified deer hide and the old smoke hole, too. And there was another shack, which originally had been a sweat lodge or something. You went in and smoked some hash and listened for the spirits to call. And they did call, man. Those spirits came in all forms and sizes and said things you'd never forget, at least not for a while. Anyway, Ham had this girl Maggie, a street kid from Detroit, a real looker with those baby blues, bright blonde hair, and a lispy little pair of lips that had trouble around polysyllabic words. Naturally, I took a shine to her, but she was Ham's, and you couldn't so much as look her way without getting him on your case. I snuck a glance anyhow when I could— one day I took her by the hand and led her down to the river and told her I'd baptize her right there if she wanted. And she said she did, go on, do it to me, make me clean or whatever. My study at the Bible Institute was a year or so behind me then, but the words were still around and I could still utter them in a convincing way. Full immersion, I told her, the works, right down to an evocation of the Holy Spirit which would pass into her soul and so on and so forth, and her soul flying upward, skyward, I said, and so on and so forth. I admit I laid it on thick, talking about the purity of her heart this, and the salvation of her soul that, and so on and so forth, and she listened to me attentively while her hands, tiny things, fluttered like hummingbirds sipping from her ears. Even now when I think about it, I can imagine them fluttering on my shoulders and breastbone. Here he lifted his hands from the steering wheel and waved his fingers. Anyway, the Kalamazoo was one of the most polluted rivers in the world at the time. You could have walked across it if you'd had the will to do so. That sounds like an exaggeration, I know, but it was loaded with pulp waste from the paper mills along with whatever checker cab felt like adding to the mix. In any case, I led her through the bush to the shore and we stood there looking at the water. This was early evening or maybe dawn or maybe early afternoon, late fall perhaps, but a warm day for sure. The sky tried to reflect itself in the water but failed. Clouds and trees fell against the surface and were lost forever. The fish in the Kalamazoo begged for the hook. You'd flip them onto the shore and they'd flex their gills as a way of saying thanks. A few hearty bugs stalked the surface, yanking their gummy feet. You'll do better, I mean, grace-wise, without those garments, I told her. Meanwhile, during all this, Ham was in his wigwam, sleeping. He slept like a mule. You could hear his snores all the way down to the shore. At least I thought you could. I knew he'd eventually get up, find her gone, and start looking. I knew he'd come down the trail noisily, heaving from side to side, unsteady on his feet, coughing and wheezing because he was a grizzly of a man, and he snorted and snuffled even when he was still. You wanted to give him fair warning if he came up to him from behind. One was inclined to wear a bear bell around the guy. Anyway, in her full naked glory, there was a shame in her that made her put her hands up and then down and then up. I said, I'm going to hold you under and speak the words, and you'll be down there in the depths where it's dark and dreary amid the detritus and waste for a moment, and you'll panic, most likely. Feeling my hand there, I said, putting my hand on the back of her head. But you must resist the panic, because I'll keep you under just as long as it takes me to say the words. Then I'll release you, and you'll come up sputtering into newborn light, brighter than anything you've seen before. And she said, I'm right for it. I'm in need. I've got blemishes that must be washed away. And I said, good, good, you're ready but one more thing. When you see that newborn light, take a long look before it fades when your eyes adjust. You only get a glimpse before it goes away, and then you have to rely on memory, and if your memory isn't strong, you'll lose your grip on salvation. Then I took her into the water and started, pushing her under, and at some point I heard Ham on his way down, heaving through the brush. He must have seen me through the trees. What did he see?' A man gripping his girl's head, holding her down while she wiggled with the Holy Spirit, splashing a froth into the air. Naturally, from his vantage, he misconstrued my actions and became wild with rage. Dancing his way, bow-legged through the brambles, held back only by his fear of water. Ham's terror of water was incredible. He could hardly find it in himself to splash his own face from the tap. He found brushing his teeth impossible. You could see his fear in the way he came in up to his toes and then backed out quickly. There were huge forces at play. He'd gone up against them as far as he could, and then he drew a line. He cursed the water, the river, and then yours truly. Against this backdrop, I tried to keep to the task at hand, and if anyone's to blame for my failings for holding her under a beat too long, it's Ham himself for proving such a distraction. Timing is everything when it comes to the work of baptism. One wrong move and God enters the world at a weird angle. Take my word for it. I kept to the task at hand. After I released her body to the currents, Ham raced along the shore. I can't account for her spirit, but her body swung in wide windmill loops as it was drawn downstream just out of Ham's reach. For a moment he stood still, quivering in a force field between his rage toward me and his lust for her. Lust won the prize, and he moved downstream, trying to lure her in with the end of a branch. But the currents were too strong. Long story short, I went back to Ham's wigwam and sacked his food. Long story short, I ate his food while he followed her body all the way to Lake Michigan, where he stood on the shore and rolled his shoulders as if bracing for a fight. He stood on the shore and bellowed. He was a grand, operatic bellower. His voice spiraled out over the water as if blown from a conch shell. A big, fat bellow that came five miles up the river to his wigwam, where by the time the sound got to me it was weak and feeble but still as clear as day. I sat, held off on my chewing as long as I could, and listened, clenching my teeth against the ringing in my ears and the soft breeze that was coming through the leaves as evening approached. I was happy, because when the evening light met the Kalamazoo, it did so on equal terms. And then for a while, until night fell and it was too dark to see, the river looked clean and even drinkable, Meg, as pure as anything you've seen in the world up until now." He talked and then fell silent and then talked some more until a few hours later they were in Niagara Falls and he nudged her awake so she could see the mist plume over the horizon. Then they drove along the river and up to the observation station and got out to stretch their legs. That river goes the wrong fucking way. It goes north instead of south, he explained, taking her hand. Then he climbed onto the fence and sat, patting the wooden railing. Goes against the grain of gravity heading that way, Meg. And it did. To their right, the Niagara's water tore along the bank, groped hard, forming small eddies in which leaves and bits of trash pooled. To their left, all fury and wonder until the river got close to the edge and then grew smooth and calm, thin with hesitation. You'll be able to walk out there if you're careful enough and stick with the harder surface near the edge, he said. And if I tell you to do it, you'll do it, won't you? You'll step right out there on your beautiful little feet when I give you the command and you'll be Just fine. One more textbook case of discard and loss. Another suicide fished out of the waters. Bodies were pushed to the bottom initially for a few minutes, and then, unless snagged on the rocks below, they bobbed up and twirled around, unable to catch the outflow, which made it easy for the man named Kit Wilson, who took his Zodiac out with the collecting nets, to catch hold of her body and draw it up against the hull. Another slipper, he thought. Another foolish tourist who got too close. Another drunkard unable to resist the lure of danger. Another kid who went in too deep and couldn't get out of the rage. Another American testing the edge. Canadians rarely went over. Another girl skinny-dipping with her boyfriend, swimming too far out into the tangle of currents, taking the long trip down with plenty of time to think over her life and to consider the mistakes she'd made in one form or another. Maybe she simply couldn't live up to the expectations that life had and decided that this was the best way to go, majestic and grand, united with the great drive of the water that had been coming over this escarpment for a million years, with the exception of that wonderful time years ago when just a trickle came over the scarred jawbone of rock, while the rest of the mighty river was surprised to find itself diverted through the power plant intake pipes. It seemed that at least once a year, the same girl came over the falls to give him a bit roll in the large drama that would culminate when the news crews showed up and asked him to speak. His Canuck voice would be clear and exact. We don't know where she came from, no idea why she did it, the falls aren't something to fool with, and no, I don't get used to pulling them out like this. He fished her out and saw that she was maybe 14 or 15, with a thin, malformed rump tiny arms and a bruised face, cut along her brow, from which stared a pair of mute blue eyes. Her lips were pulled back in a grimace, exposing a gap between her two front teeth. Looking down at the body, flexing along with the hull, he got a hint of her story. Later, he'd hear her name, Meg Allen, and learn that her history could be traced back as far as a hotel in Cleveland, where she had murdered a seed dealer from a place called Mansfield, and then a bit further back to a hell-on-earth childhood in Akron. Whatever produced these bodies with regularity would go on, he thought. If there was a way to stop it, it had been forgotten long ago. He held the tiller and got the motor going full throttle, and watched as the wake dug surprisingly straight and clean out of the torment. He loved the feel of the boat when its stern cut deep and, in turn, the bow lifted toward the sky, slapping over the waves. He loved the way the wake spread itself out, even in the foam and rage, and how, when he was past the wash-up, as they called it, the water gathered itself into order and smoothed quickly, as if eager to be done with all the noise and to get back to a more settled existence on the way down to the whirlpool, where it would spin mindlessly for a few minutes before being released into the relative calm of the river as it headed toward the merciful breadth of Lake Ontario.
0: That was Jonathan Franzen, Reading the Spot, by David Means. The story was published in The New Yorker in August of 2006 and in the collection of the same title, which was published by Faber & Faber in 2010. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. So, John, the first four lines of this story, at least in the New Yorker layout, are taken up by this list of names and aliases that the main character, who's now called Shank, has used. Why open with that kind of a list? Is he trying to tell us, you know, that this is just one of eight possible stories we could hear about this guy or something else?
1: Well, lists are... Often, at least a little bit funny. Uh, One of the primary tensions in the story, I think, is between the weird humor of it and particularly in the narrator's voice, this kind of skeptical humor and the really appalling things that happen in the Mm -hmm. story. But what makes it a funny list is it goes on like two elements too long. Right. It's you know, normally if it's it's an A.K.A. And I chose, by the way, to read it as also known as even though in, in, in the text it's printed A.K.A. Normally, you know, you get like two or three, maybe four aliases. You don't get eight. Right. <laughs> um, so I think it serves to set that playful tone that is going to be at war with the um, with the dark content.
0: Well, when we think about Shank, he's had a lot of identities beyond the names. You know, we we don't learn a lot about him, but we do know that he was a berry picker, that he was a merchant marine, that he was a Bible student. Now he's a pimp. He's also a sociopathic murderer. He has that great line when he's talking about the water in, in Lake Erie, and he says, that's the mystery of chance. One minute you're one thing, the next you're another. And choice had nothing at all to do with it. Do you think that choice had anything to do with what he's become?
1: You have the sense that it didn't. I think there are there are two things that you feel in this story and, and in a number of other stories of David's. One is it feels like something happened to Michigan in the 60s and maybe early 70s. It sent an awful lot of people to Vietnam. And there was, uh, you know, there was campus unrest. There was a, things were kind of wild and crazy. There the Detroit riots. So there are often characters in means as fiction who feel somehow damaged, wrecked by something that happened back in the '60s, early '70s. And the other thing is that he's. This is not a privileged guy. Privilege consists of having choices, of having the power to enforce a choice you've made. And if you're on the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Often you just don't have those choices, and you've just drifted from this to this.
0: What seems, at least in this context, to have been the seminal moment for him is this moment of losing his faith in God. So he was a Bible mm-hmm. student, and at some point he sees this you know, water burning on the river, on the Cuyahoga, and he doesn't see a, a single sign of prophecy in it. And that's when he loses faith in God, or he says somewhere, God has failed to give him a precise indication of his will. And you wonder what he was expecting and what that disappointment does to him, why he thought he would personally be receiving a sign of prophecy.
1: Well, it is remarkable to witness a river on fire. I mean, that's kind of what set the ball rolling for Moses, after all, was he's walking around and (laughs) unexpectedly something is burning that shouldn't be burning. But instead of hearing the voice of God, Shank feels nothing. He hears nothing and that's it, is how I read that why he would have expected to get some message, well, that's, if you've been brought up in Christianity or any kind of religion, you think at an important moment, like seeing a river on fire, well, what was all of that Bible study for? What were all those boring church services for if not to have religion ready at your command when something amazing happens? And so I I think it made a certain amount of sense to me that that would be the moment of disappointment for him.
0: And do you think that that loss of faith or that sort of moment where he shrugs God off because God didn't bother to appear to him it is what sets off this sort of loss of morality?
1: A better guess might be that he was dropped on his head as a baby, but uh, <laughs> I mean, sociopaths, I suspect, are, are born, not made, or are made early. On
0: the other hand, he was driven to be a Bible student. He did sort of Try this route of
1: of the straight and
0: narrow. People who
1: feel themselves to be fundamentally impure will often be the ones most strongly drawn to religion. And later, earlier in time, but later in the story, when he's baptizing Ham's girlfriend, I don't think he's trying to kill her. It just, you know, something went a little awry, and and there he is, having kind of given up his faith, but still trying to offer some kind of redemption, some kind of salvation, some kind of cleansing to a similarly lost soul. He emerges as a guy you would not want to be stuck in a car with, because he would (laughs) never shut up, but also one of those guys who's really smart. He has resources. He's not stupid at all. And yet he moves through the world causing harm.
0: It's interesting to think about whether that moment of drowning Maggie, if it's so unintentional, why it leaves so little mark on him. You know, his first response is to go off to Ham's Wigwam and eat all his food.
1: It actually brings to mind the last line of I.B. Singer's novel, Family Moscat, Maybe my favorite last line in all of literature, which is it's a line of dialogue, death is the Messiah and that's the truth. If you were to be sucked down the spot into the water intake system for Cleveland's water supply, you would be dead. It's purely imagining that you will somehow emerge clean from that. And in Christian symbolism, you die in order to be reborn. There is, you know, there's that kind of death part in there. It's like that part stayed with him, like, but the belief in some better, cleaner future salvation that didn't outlast the moment with the burning river.
0: You brought up earlier that David is a secret poet or that his imagery is really drawing on poetry. And, you know, you get that with the ideas of water, but also in the diction of the characters here, or particularly of Shank, who's the one character we hear from, it seems unlikely that a real person would say the things that Shanks says, or would say aloud, do I wonder at the forlorn gravity of the way things went in the past. Why the stylization of his language in that way?
1: I actually, I found that somewhat more believable than other aspects of Hank's diction. I think people just don't use as if, and they don't use participial constructions in spoken language, or at least not comma, present participle constructions. Uh, All of which really is telling you that this is not naturalistic. But then you do have to remember that almost no dialogue is naturalistic. All dialogue is tailored because actually putting in all of the ums and the repetitions and and the bad diction becomes intolerable to read. But clearly you have here an author who doesn't particularly care about verisimilitude. See, I liked that kind of stem-winding thing where he asked the questions and answers. I most certainly do, because this is a crazy kind of talented guy talking more or less to himself in the middle of the night while this girl sleeps in the passenger seat, and that kind of peroration seemed like something he could do. Maybe the most poetic of the questions is not something anyone could just bring out of their mouth. Although, you know, who knows how much speed he's on. Um, <laughs> but what do you gain by that stylized spoken English is the question. <sighs> well, it goes back to Flannery O'Connor saying fiction writer does whatever they can get away with. And um, <laughs> is it a bug or a feature is really the, the question here. And I think it probably tastes different. And if you consider it a serious bug, There's a certain kind of fiction that's probably not for you. To me, it's a feature because it raises interesting questions of where the narrator is. There are four levels. You have the author on the outside who's all controlling, actually putting the words on the page, and then you have the narrator, and the narrator has a voice which is not necessarily the author's own voice. And then within that narrator, you have these characters who are telling these stories, and then there's the story itself that is being told. And to me, interesting things happen when there is a certain amount of bleed, not only between author and narrator, although that is, that's always an interesting question, but then there's also a bleed between the narrator's voice and Shank Sch- as narrator's voice. It reminds me a lot of Faulkner. If you go to Absalom, Absalom, you get deep into these narratives being delivered by the characters, and there's just no way they actually spoke like that. Mr. Thompson was smart, but he wasn't that smart.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Obviously, David Means has made a choice here, and he's made—one of the choices is that he gives us the story of Ham and Maggie and Shank's actions in Shank's voice. Before that, the writing is more or less in Shank's mind, but it's at a remove. And then this is Shank telling a story, and so there's a slight shift And that makes me wonder, why? Why do we get it in his first person? And also, why is Shank telling Meg this story? Is it some kind of cautionary tale for Meg? Is he saying, look, I killed the other girl, and be careful, or watch out, or I'm not to be trusted?
1: I think that interpretation is available. It's not clear that Meg is listening, uh, even if she's awake. I think to some extent he's bragging. Right. And also he is the pimp. There could be consciously or not a wish to keep her terrorized.
0: Well, he's telling her the story after she's just killed the John. That's right. Is it maybe a way of finding uh companionship in murder or is it or has what she did actually perhaps scared him a little?
1: It could be as simple as oh this reminds me of the time I killed someone. <laughs> <laughs> and under somewhat ambiguous circumstances. And it also, there could be at least a pro forma attempt to um, make her feel not so alone with what she's done.
0: Now, Meg, and this story might have been the seeds for David Means' forthcoming novel, his first novel, Histopia.
1: Yes, that was something that struck me when I went back to the story. I'd forgotten that the young woman's name is Meg Allen, and there is a Meg Ellen that appears in Histopia. And uh, one of the main narrative elements in David's new novel is this troubled young woman who's basically been taken hostage by, uh, beyond sociopath, really kind of a psychopath, in this alt history, different but recognizable Michigan of the supposedly late 60s, early 70s. The dynamic between them and the talkativeness of the man and the passivity and yet potential redeemability of the woman, it's, it's all there. It feels like this was not exactly an early draft of the book, but it was clearly he was using the same fundamental materials. You have the sense that something is being obsessively worked out, that part of where this incredible thematic density and this density of imagery and these extreme situations come from, but also the sort of fragmented treatment of them, it's coming from the same place for David.
0: It obviously wouldn't be the same girl since she's dead at the end of this story. Looking at that death, why does it happen It's not as simple as Shank pushing her off the falls. He suggests to her that she try walking out there and that she'll be safe. And he suggests that simply saying this to her will make her do it. Why does he want to be rid of her? You know, she's earning a living for him.
1: She is earning a living, but she's likely to bring the law down on them, it seems to me. So I thought there might be a simple self-preservation. He also may have glimpsed, wow, if she hates the guy she feels abused by enough to strangle him, what might she do with me? So I read it as uh, certainly the front line is that he's a little scared of having any association with her. And it's actually very clever the way he does it, which is he simply suggests... He's already kind of set up this fascination with the purifying power of water, and why don't you walk on the water out there for a ways, Um, you'll be fine. Why she does it, well, the story is not very strong or very interested in her own psychology. It seems to be a fairly classic story of a severely abused girl. But she's sitting obviously on some heavy duty guilt and doesn't seem to be thinking all that straight. And of course, it's she's walking away from him. There may be an attraction in, in simply turning her back on him and walking out into the water.
0: And we get that very last sentence of the story. We get that wonderful word, merciful, following the path of the water from Niagara Falls into the merciful breadth of Lake Ontario. But one gets a sense that perhaps We should see what's happened to her as a form of mercy.
1: Yes. (laughs) I'm not going to run with that one, Deborah, but I like it. (laughs) Okay.
0: You know, you mentioned just now that Means keeps coming back to these kinds of characters, to vagrants, to young couples, criminals on the lam, and that kind of desperation. And I wonder why he's drawn to these themes over and over.
1: As with any good writer, there are a number of distinct modes to David's output in his stories. He's written a lot of stories. It's four or five collections he has out. And some of them are very much set in good middle-class suburban settings. There'll be lawyers, there are professors, there are people who go to museums and nice restaurants... And then and there's another vein that are, that are historical that seem to be imagined out of his encounters with American history, particularly early 20th century American history. And then there is this big set of stories with really, really marginal individuals, in some cases quite crazy, in many cases quite violent. And I think, you know, I shouldn't be the one to talk about David's life, but I think he is a remarkably kind, funny, well-adjusted person whose wife is one of the greatest people I've ever met, um, and they've been married forever, and they have two wonderful kids. And so he has actually, he's got a good life, and yet you don't have to walk very far from his front yard into other parts of his extended family to find really, really messed up people and really, really dark and violent stuff. He has not lived it himself, and yet he's lived very close to it. And I think in a way the voltage between how good he has it and the real desperation of people very close to him has been fruitful. Maybe the intensity with which he delves into The really dark stuff is a measure of the precariousness that he feels his own life has, and maybe also the guilt.
0: There's also a wonderful kind of parallel friction in the work itself between the brutality and the desperation and the pure grittiness of some of the subjects and this elevation and sophistication of the language.
1: And the form. Um, on
0: the form, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, it, this is not one draft stuff being typed on an endless roll of paper in a typewriter. This is actually, <laughs> these are very, very carefully constructed little timepieces that he's writing. He's a sophisticated writer, and it would almost be dishonest to pretend to be a primitive writer.
0: So the issue you raised a few times earlier was about the humor in the story. And here we've been talking about the murder and the brutality and the sociopathology of it. What's the humor for you?
1: Where is it or what is it doing there? (laughs) Both. Well, this is not his funniest story by any means. This is one of his less leavened with humor stories. But there are lines. You know, depression and humor go together. The most depressed people are often, when they're not acutely depressed, the funniest people. Humor is a wonderful coping mechanism for really, really hard stuff. In this case, it's just like there'll be these moments where a little steam is let off by stepping back and laughing, pushing it a little too far. To say more would put me in the Gary Larson cartoon where... The scientist is trying to explain humor, as back is turned to the class, and someone has taped Kick Me to the seat of his pants.
0: Well, thank you so much, John.
1: Thanks, Deborah.
0: David Means is the author of four short story collections, including The Spot, The Secret Goldfish, and Assorted Fire Events. His first novel, *Histopia*, will be published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in April. Jonathan Franzen is the author of five novels and five books of nonfiction and translation. His third novel, The Corrections, won the National Book Award in 2001, and his fifth, Purity, was published last September. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.